Good morning, everyone. It's a joy for us to turn our eyes to Jesus together here this morning. Is it not? Amen. We turn our eyes to Christ revealed in the Holy Scriptures here this morning. If you take your Bibles and open them to 1 John chapter 1, as many of you already are aware, the title of today's message is The Divine and Incarnate One. That word incarnate understood as God being revealed in the flesh. And please stand with me for the reading of our passage for today, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is the word of life. Cuts down deep, discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Let us listen, calm our hearts as we hear from God. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write, so that our joy may be made complete. Amen. You may be seated. We spoke to this much last week, but a, a proper understanding of, of any activity or worthwhile endeavor that we pursue to partake in is critical for appropriate application. That said, the, an improper understanding can lead certainly to a wide array of consequences. Some, of course, unfortunately, negative and with longer lasting effects when we have an improper understanding of someone or even something. There's a sense in which we all need a basic understanding, and we spoke of that in detail last week, in whatever desire we have in life, job, occupation, whatever it may be, it's critical for us. I can remember starting my career um, as a food service salesman many years ago. For over 12 weeks, many of us sat in a class learning a myriad of tools and concepts about food service sales. Along the way, whether it was the marbling of a steak, the sizing of shrimp, or the butterfat content of ice cream, there was much to learn. You like that butterfat content of ice in there, don't you? <laughs> I do too. 
Although there was also an essential yet fundamental aspect that they discussed, but unfortunately along the way I neglected, and that was knowing people and understanding how, we might say, they desire to be sold. It was that very element in which I suffered several setbacks in my early career. Setbacks that definitely led to a loss of sales. I failed to acknowledge the significance that not everyone wanted to be sold by my emotion and my excitement for some specific ice cream. (laughs) That's my personality, and that's what I wanted to bring was passion and zeal and excitement in order that I could sell that product. Although, not everybody's wired the same way, are they? Some are more detailed than others. And some of those customers that I had contact with, they wanted the features, advantages, and benefits laid out succinctly and precisely, and even with a spreadsheet to boot. I didn't care for the spreadsheet too much. What would their food costs be? How could the item be specifically prepared? What other uses could I use in order to maximize my efforts with that product? Just to name a few. I couldn't believe it. You mean my relationship with you, my passion and zeal for this product is not enough to convince you to buy it? It was due to the neglect of this basic and fundamental aspect of sales where I experienced some difficulty in the beginning. I had failed to understand and appreciate who, I emphasize who, certain customers were. In some respects, all of us can relate, even if your life doesn't involve sales. Nevertheless, whatever it may be, I'm sure we all would agree That when we know someone or something well, it often contributes to more opportunities for positive experiences. That said, how trivial is my example or your example compared to knowing who the Lord Jesus Christ is and well? Not to mention the temporal, this world, and eternal implications of that knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. As for John, he certainly desired to strengthen that knowledge in these churches within Asia Minor. To fortify them in order to protect them, as we discussed last week, primarily against the threat of the early beginnings of Gnosticism. If you recall, we explored that a little bit. We'll even talk more about that today so you have a better appreciation of what John desired to communicate and protect those churches. But just this idea that you need some type of knowledge outside of, be it mystical or new, outside of the scriptures in order to understand who God is or this attack upon the humanity of Christ as well, which we'll explore more today. 
In the last week, we talked about a proper belief being absolutely vital in this protection. In these first four verses of this letter, John wastes no time establishing that proper belief. Moreover, he also speaks to several positive consequences of a proper belief. Next week, we'll spend more time on those consequences. Good consequences. Throughout this book, you're going to see those three overarching themes that we discussed last week throughout. And these verses are no exception. By way of reminder, we talked about a proper belief, a willful obedience, and then a selfless love that we see throughout this book. Now, I have to say, for those of you that read the MCC weekly update, you'll know where I'm coming from, but in studying and preparing for this message, it became increasingly clear to me. I, I went in with the, the thought that we would expound upon these four verses in this service and then move into the next verses. Well, it became very clear that that was not going to be possible. I thought I would spare you from a marathon message of an hour and a half here. Might You guys might kick me out by that time. All kidding aside, there's just too much here for us to skim over. Um, moreover, that, that's the beauty of expositional preaching, is it not? Amen. We take the, test, the text as we go. We work our way through it thoroughly, diligently, mining all of the details, every nugget, in order that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as for today, we'll provide just two answers. I don't know if I've even preached a sermon here yet with only two points. But just two answers to one question from this section. A question that John answers with specificity. I was tongue-twisted on that word in the first service, so I wanted to clearly articulate it. Absolute specificity, John answers. And that's the question, who is Jesus Christ? We discussed it last week. Basic, fundamental Christianity. Please don't turn your ears and heart and mind off when we say, Who is Jesus Christ? For the churches in Asia Minor, they began to lose sight of that. And John needed to reaffirm those truths. We need to be reaffirmed in those truths as well. Next week, we'll tackle the question why is that important? Or what does that even produce? Our first question will, will be more focused on fundamental content and doctrine. Our second question next week will examine more of John's application that flows forth from that content and doctrine. So, let's begin with our first answer to the question, who is Jesus Christ 
from the book of 1 John, and that is, number one, the eternal God. We'll look at that, this in verses 1 and 2. Jesus Christ, who he is, he is clearly the eternal God. It's important for us to note, and you'll see throughout this letter, that John doesn't communicate in a typical linear and easily structured format. It's definitely a little bit more <clears throat> difficult to read through and to understand compared to a typical letter. That said, you'll notice the answers that I provide here today and probably throughout the weeks to come to these questions don't always flow in a sequential, logical manner. Be that as it may, there are three fate phrases within these first two verses that identify Jesus Christ as the eternal God. Right from the onset, you see it. The words state what was from the beginning. And these words communicate with crystal clarity. Let's dig into it. Now, grammatically, we can distinguish John's connection of this phrase to the title at the end of verse 1 that you can see, the word of life. It was the word of life that was from the beginning, perhaps some of you even now. Remember at least one example of John's other uses of this title, one that is very well known, comes from his gospel in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where we, we hear of this same verbiage later to be identified as Christ. In the Gospel of John, it reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Or even within John's apocalyptic work of the book of Revelation, we hear the same description of Christ. In Revelation 19.13, stated, He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and His name is called the Word of God. And that is a reference to Christ. And not only was John communicating that the Word of God is Jesus Christ. Or in our text here today, the Word of life is Jesus Christ. But he was also communicating that he was, and I emphasize that verb, was from the beginning. Now, we have referenced this several times in the past, but this is another component of that Greek verb that communicates an ongoing action. That he was ongoing from the beginning. It's interesting when describing the humanity of Christ, which we will get to, he does not use the same verb tense. However, here, it's all about the ongoing, ongoing eternal aspect of the God-man, the word of life, Jesus Christ. An, inter an eternal aspect that was from the beginning. And once again, 
in perfect scriptural harmony, bearing witness to the eternality of Christ. John has mentioned this before in this same letter. Scripture interprets Scripture as the reformers referred to as the analogy of faith. Turn over to chapter 2, verse 13. John states, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. And then again, in John's book of Revelation, we hear the words of Christ himself. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, Christ states, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Two Greek letters in the alphabet referring to the beginning and the end. Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So, at least from the beginning of the time-space universe, we might call, call it, Christ has existed as God. What about eternality, though? When we think of eternity, does that include time? Does God have a beginning? At least from our human perspective. We can see from verse 1 that Christ was from the beginning. And we'll identify that as the time-space-universe beginning. Nonetheless, look with me in verse 2. John demonstrates that Christ, along with the Father, has and will always exist. Verse 2 states, chapter 1, And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Now, two massively key elements for us to unpack here. Stay with me. It's rich. This can be extremely helpful for us in understanding the eternal God, Jesus Christ. First, notice the article, the, before eternal life. This is attributed to and helps to identify Christ, the person of Christ. Now, in John chapter 5, verse 20, we have one example that perhaps could be utilized to against the argument that I'm about to make where John does not use the article, the, the word the, that is the article, before eternal. However, he does... Use it before true God. Turn over to chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 20. You'll notice the article, the, before true God, but then yet he still connects it to eternal life. Stay with me. This is so rich and good for us 
5.20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. True God and eternal life connected together to describe the person of Jesus Christ. In every other one of John's uses of eternal life, except for one, he does not use the article the. Why is that the case? Because in those instances... The lack of the article, along with the context, supports a message of eternal life. Not that Christ is the eternal life or the true God in what we are examining here today. Nonetheless, in the beginning of this letter, in order to solidify the absolute fact that Christ is the eternal God, John uses the article here, the eternal life, to demonstrate that Christ is the eternal God outside of time, without beginning, if you will. Additionally, he goes on to say, as we read, he was with the Father. Again, John uses another one of these these Greek verbs to communicate an ongoing action. Was ongoing with the Father. Eternally existing. Christ has always been with the Father is an ongoing, eternal condition. Likewise, John, throughout his other writings, continues to confirm this, as we already alluded to in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, he states, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word, who was already identified as Christ, was with God. And then, uh, just a cannonball, of a weapon against false cults such as Jehovah's Witnesses that would deny the deity of Christ. Perhaps the grandest example that John has ever used to confirm this eternality of Jesus Christ, that he is outside of time, that he has and will always exist with the Father. He writes of Jesus' high priestly prayer, You don't need to turn there, but listen to these words. Jesus himself spoke in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 5, when he said, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world began. The triune Godhead. And John, in this letter, does not, especially in this context, address the Holy Spirit. We will get to the Holy Spirit in this letter. But as for here, 
at least the two persons of the triune Godhead, the Father and the Son, have always existed together outside of, etern- outside of time. Christ is the eternal God. Or, even in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 30 and 31, we see Christ's proclamation of his deity, his eternal aspect, And then even the response from the Jews that further proclaims that they understood wholeheartedly what he was claiming and their hatred and vitriol towards him because of his claim that he said, I and the Father are one. How did they respond? The Jews picked up stones and again to stone him. They knew what he was claiming. They knew what he was stating. There's tremendous benefit and power in knowing who Christ is. As for this answer, the eternal God. And we will most certainly get there in more detail next week. That said, is there a picture It paints an image of who the eternal God is. I mentioned this in the first service, but in some respects, all analogies and pictures, especially concerning the eternal nature of God, fall short, but I'll give it a shot. We might say that life and time are like a ruler with a beginning and an end. And Christ... The eternal God is like a circle around that ruler, albeit not restrained by time, outside of it all. He is the eternal God. Next week, continue to reiterate the fact that we'll see How John brings forth application that flows forth from these grand truths. Nevertheless, for us here today, what comfort, what peace, what trust, what rest can we experience in knowing that Christ is infinite? Paul said it as such in Colossians chapter 1 verse 17. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. As was the case for the churches of Asia Minor and us here today, let not your finite, every single one of us, and limited minds be troubled. Whatever your challenge is today, whatever obstacle, awaits you. Know that the infinite and eternal Christ is holding all things together. Amen. Is working everything together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What's more, in perfect divine harmony, Scripture continues to interpret Scripture 
as John has alluded to the, this divine connection between the Father and the Son. It was the Father, as the prophet Isaiah spoke in chapter 46, verse 10, that communicates that he knows the beginning from the end and that his counsel shall stand. As for today, with more application primarily focused next week to come, let us walk with confidence. Let us walk with conviction that this eternal God who we worship is in sovereign control of everything, holding it together. Holding your broken life together. And some of us, even now as I speak, are more broken than others. But this great God in heaven in whom we worship will never fail you, will never leave you, and will always sustain you. Amen. Now, before moving to our second answer to who Jesus is, I do believe it's fundamentally important for us to note John's priority of descriptive order. Not just in this text, but even throughout his other works, he clearly intends to communicate what some would refer to as a high Christology that word just simply meaning the study of Christ. That is opposed to a low Christology. That's to say a deity-centered first study of Christ as compared to his humanity. There's certainly a reason why we use the term the God-man. None of us say the man-God. His humanity is critical and cannot be neglected, nor does John neglect it for the churches of Asia Minor, nor will we neglect it here today. Nevertheless, everything begins with the absolute truth that Christ is the eternal God. Without that absolute truth, what else do we have? Without the fact that he is the God-man, how could your sins and my sins be washed as far as the east is from the west? This is essential and critical and important for us to note the order that John utilizes in communicating this encouragement to the churches in Asia Minor, and then even for us through God's inspired word here today, it would have certainly served to protect John's audience as well as protect us today. That said, let's turn our attention to his humanity and the second answer to that question, who is Jesus Christ? And that is number two, the incarnate man. God in the flesh. 
after laying the foundation of deity. Remember, one of the other Gnostic threats was this attack on the humanity of Christ. And based on this challenge, John emphasizes and reiterates, even through these four verses, the humanity of Christ. The reality that he and the apostles and other eyewitnesses had heard and seen and touched this Christ. Look back at our verses in chapter 1 as we look at this emphasis. In verse 1, you can see him referring to the senses of hearing and sight and touch. And then in verse 2, he speaks of the life being manifested or being revealed. Not to mention the sense of sight again, reiterating and emphasizing. And then in verse 3, he once again uses sight and hearing. You think he was trying to communicate some type of message to the original audience? Clearly, this is literal, not metaphorical. Furthermore, notice how he moves from the abstract hearing to the more material touching. It's one thing to say that, that, that you've heard someone. It's another to say that you've seen that someone or something. It's a whole nother level of intimacy to say that you have touched that individual in one of Jesus' resurrection accounts he described that sense of touch in conjunction with the human body as follows in Luke chapter 24 verse 39 listen to this concerning the humanity of Christ see my hands and my feet that it is I myself touch me and see For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So, several times now we've mentioned this attack on the humanity of Christ with the Gnostic system of beliefs. Let me explain in more detail one specific form of this attack in order for you to have a better appreciation of John's emphasis upon protecting the humanity of Christ. For the Gnostic, one aspect of that belief revolved around the fact that matter or the body was inherently evil and the spirit was good. And in that faulty belief system, as a result, they proclaimed that Christ and his body was not actually literal. Why did they do that? Because they believed that the body and matter was evil, and how could Christ be evil? So his body just appeared to be real, was the claim by these false 
individuals, beliefs that they communicated. And given a background such as that, can you see the necessity of John's commitment to be forceful and repetitive in his affirmation of the humanity of Christ? Obviously, it was culturally vital for these churches to address this, given the threat. What about any other dangerous implications for them or even for us here today of neglecting the humanity of Christ? Why should we be concerned with a proper belief, to use that theme component that we used last week, of Christ's humanity? I want you to listen to the words of our doctrinal statement here at Miriam Christian Chapel. This is what we hold to. This is what we affirm. This is what we know the Bible to teach concerning the person and work of Christ. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished our redemption through his death on the cross as a representative vicarious, substitutionary sacrifice. That's our doctrinal statement. That word vicarious meaning on our behalf. How did Christ become that vicarious, substitutionary sacrifice? The writer of Hebrews describes it as such in chapter 2. Verses 14 and 17, as we wrap our minds around why is it important for us to understand the basic fundamental concept of this incarnate one, the humanity of Christ. The writer in Hebrews states, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We defined that term biblically last week, propitiation, Speaking of the removal of God's wrath from us. How is his wrath removed from us, which we all so rightfully deserved? How does he become the merciful and faithful high priest? The word states he had to be made like his brethren in all things. Massive implications for us as we consider 
Obviously for the churches at Asia Minor and even for us here today. Doctrinally, it's important. And even application, as we will see next week, plays even a large role as well. Not to mention in John's Gospel, not only was the Word with God, but you know the verse in chapter 1, verse 14, we see even more correlating affirmation from the Apostle John concerning, John, or concerning Christ's humanity. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14 reads, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt carries the sense of taking up residence as if under a tent. In the Old Testament, the root of the word is specifically used for a tabernacle. Think about the significance of that, even just for a moment. In the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, Moses had access to speaking to God face to face as to a friend. In Exodus chapter 33. Yet, for us, here today, for the churches of Asia Minor, it was the God-man, Jesus Christ, in which mankind was given a much more intimate and personal access to this person of Jesus Christ. And for this original audience, given those threats that they were exposed to, John is primarily, especially in the beginning, more concerned about the Father and the Son. He will touch the Spirit. But for us here today in this church age, how much more even pleasing, gratifying, encouraging is it to us to know of this personal and intimate access that we have access to in the Holy Spirit that indwells each and every one of us. Not that He is just this eternal God, infinite, which He is, transcendent above it all, but that He is personal and intimate and connected To you and to me. A proper belief, as we stated last week, will inevitably and always lead to a willful obedience and a selfless love. Next week, we'll look at four specific applications that flow forth from this proper belief that Christ is the eternal God, and the incarnate one. He's certainly that. As for this morning, would you let those certain and objective truths that ring loud from God's authoritative word ground us and protect us against empty deception, against man-made philosophies? Would you let them ground you in the knowledge that if you are in Christ, born again, washed by His blood, that you have eternal life? 
Because the eternal life, the eternal God, Christ Jesus, has paid the price for you. And then finally, if there are any here without Christ, I pray even now that in light of what you know to be true, that you would bow your knees in submission and confess with your mouth to this eternal God, this one who came to dwell among us, this one who even now left us with the Holy Spirit, that even now that if you are without Christ convicts you of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. That you might come to know the intimacy of this one who came to dwell with us. Hallelujah. Bow with me in prayer. Lord Jesus, in humble adoration, we lift up the name of Christ above all things. We see you as the eternal God outside of time from the beginning of our universe. Yet all the while, not contained by its restraints. Before the foundation of the world, Lord, you sought us out and knew us. While we were in our mother's womb, you formed us and knew us. That is an intimate and personal God. We thank you, Lord, that here today we can say, Abba, Father, you are precious. You are lovely. You refer to us even today as a friend of God because of the sacrifice that you made as the eternal God, capable, willing, and able to remove all of our impurities, all of our lawlessness, in order that you might commune with us. Lord, let our life be an offering unto you because of these great truths. In the mighty and precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.